continuing on with uh, Romans and today looking a little bit at uh, Romans chapter 14. We've just finished uh, Romans 13 in which we've learned how to negotiate allegiance to Christ and the church and uh, how we're to negotiate then our relationship to the state. And what Paul is aiming in chapter 14 is a continuation of this idea. He's trying to make a unified community from among those coming from uh, pagan Rome and from Judaism. And so he's attempting to create a community that can agree together on ethical practices. You know, what should we do? Should we follow certain uh, days or seasons or certain food laws? But instead of creating a a legal mandate, he gives them what we might call a love mandate. The problem throughout the history of Christianity, even beginning here, is that there's always been the tendency toward two kinds of Christianity. And I think that's what they're facing. One would be a kind of formal religion. Uh, Observe this day. Eat or do not eat. Accept Jesus into your heart be baptized, that we would tend, and I think historically tend, to make a ritual of do or do not do. And the kind of Christianity that Paul is trying to foster is one that follows Christ and practices love. In other words, there is a Christianity in which one is not really a Christian, in any meaningful sense of the term. And these will be those most attached to the form of the religion, but denying the power thereof. And so this is not really Christianity. It is ideology. It's just religion as this world knows it. And so Paul is going to give us a different kind of ethic, a different kind of mandate. Reading from the beginning of chapter 14. Now, accept the one who is weak in faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. One person has faith that he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats vegetables only. The one who eats is not to regard with contempt the one who does not eat. And the one who does not eat is not to judge the one who eats, for God has accepted him. Who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master he stands or falls, and he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person regards one day above another, another regards every day alike. Each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day observes it for the Lord, and he who eats does so for the Lord, for he gives thanks to God. And he who does not eat, for the Lord he does not eat. And he gives thanks to God. For not one of us lives for himself, and not one dies for himself. For if we live, we live for the Lord. Or if we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end Christ died, and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Paul in... Uh, Corinthians gives us a similar kind of ethic 
the Corinthian church and the Roman church perhaps are both facing a similar problem. You know, in Corinth, the problem was that some are willing to eat meat sacrificed to idols that they can buy probably cheaply in the marketplace. Uh, some are, you know, apparently Judaizers are coming in and saying, well, we have to observe these particular days. Paul gives a, a, in both Romans and Corinthians a, a, a doctrinal understanding that is going to be tied to a particular ethical understanding. He ties it to what was the Jewish Shema. Yet for us there is but one God. This is something that the Jews would recite on a daily basis. The Father from whom are all things and we exist for him. And one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through him. Um, that is, he takes the Jewish Shema and he puts Christ in the middle of it. That there's one God and there's Christ Jesus, by whom all things exist. And the idea is that this unity of God that's given to us in Christ, God is one, therefore we should be one. Uh, God is one, therefore we should practice an ethic and a love that unifies us. Um, not all men know this, he says. Some, being accustomed to the idol, are accustomed to a kind of division. And some uh, will be, their consciences will be defiled by doing this. And Paul warns in Corinthians, So by sinning against the brethren and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause my brother to stumble. That is, he's giving us a particular doctrinal understanding, a particular theological understanding. God is one, and in his Son then, we know that all things hold together. And he's tying this doctrinal understanding to a practice, to an ethical understanding. So he will consistently argue for unified practices and a unified community on the basis of who God is. For Paul, there's nothing more important than that the early church be unified. I would say not just Paul, but this is what the New Testament is written uh, the, the primary purpose is to unify these early communities of Christians that tended to split themselves up over practice between Jews and Gentiles or practices that the Gnostics would enter in. Jewish monotheism may sound kind of dry if we picture it in some abstract philosophical form, but that's not the way the Jews pictured it. When they said God is one, they're not thinking of the God of the philosophers, they're thinking of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God who has delivered us out of Egypt, the God who has brought us into the promised land. And so the one who delivers is the one that we know who has unified us, who has created a people where there were no people. And the reality of this, this deliverance, this God who is Redeemer, is realized in Christ. And so, when the Jew prayed the Shema, they were taking upon themselves the yoke of God's kingdom in this world. And when the Christian then prays to God who is one, 
as realized through Christ, we're invoking our part in this kingdom. And I think that's what Paul is picturing in both Corinthians and Romans. Is there a set of practices or laws? Well, the law or the practice is that of looking out for the weaker brother. Doing nothing that would offend the other. Doing all things in love. Invoking God as one and determining to love him with heart, mind, and soul or nephish or all of one's life. Meant a total commitment to the sovereignty of this one God. He's the creator. And there is with this understanding a repudiation of all the idols of paganism. And all the cruel empires which serve them. There is a repudiation of the ethical kind of divide that would practice circumcision, as we read this morning. Or that would put into place special food laws. And so Paul is trying to take Jews who identified themselves ethically through, uh, or, or ethnically through particular food laws or circumcision or keeping uh, particular days... And he's trying to unify the Jews with Gentiles who had their own set of practices, their own, you know, moral understanding of the way things should work. And he's trying to bring these two peoples together. Um, by 70 AD, even uh, before the kingdom of Rome was opposed to Judaism and Christianity, uh, prior to this, rather, uh, there is still then. Uh, in Rome, you know, that's the problem in Romans 13, that Nero has probably come to the throne. There is already the tendency to divide over how you understand the state. And so some may, in fact, give their allegiance. The danger is they would give their allegiance completely to Rome or that they would rebel against Rome. And Paul's saying, don't do either one of those things. So there is a sense in which Ethically, acknowledging God as one is also a renunciation of any kind of uh, split or dualism in practices. You know, there's the the dualism that would uh, relinquish the orders and powers of this world to one power and say, well, Rome runs the fleshly side of our life and spiritually to another. That is, the danger is always that we'll serve two masters. Paul reworked this monotheism around Jesus. It was never a matter, and and this seems to to have not at all been a problem in the early church. That is, there was never a problem of acknowledging the deity of Christ. Uh, Because, in fact, Judaism had prepared for this understanding of the coming of the Messiah. And so... Here is the fulfillment of Jewish monotheism, the ethic that we have revealed to us in Christ that goes beyond the law, that unifies us in the ethic of love. And that's the love ethic of Romans 14. Um, Maybe we could talk about, you know, the inadequacy of a standard ethic if we look at Matthew 25. When Jesus talks about the judgment scene, the righteous are startled by the recital of their deeds of love and mercy. They were not calculated acts of moral decision, 
Uh, rather their deeds constituted by their character and faith. And I think that's what Paul is describing. There is this new ethic, but it is an ethic that flows from your character. You've been reborn. You've been remade. You've been made in the image of Christ. You've been made like Christ. Your little Christs. That's the picture of Christian. You know, Christian Christianity is not this formal thing in which Christ died so that we don't have to. Christianity is a faith in which we are faithful to Christ. We are faithful in the way that he was faithful. And so at that judgment scene in Matthew 25, the king's judgment is not based on their deliberate decisions. In other words, they didn't face some moral quandary and then worked it out. But rather, they're judged on the basis of a kind of unreckoned generosity that flowed from their character, from their uncalculating love, their aimless faithfulness. They are people who clearly have been transformed in the image of Christ. And so their ethic is not one of decisionism, of quandaries. Their ethic was not removed from their understanding, their theological understanding. And Paul's entire effort in chapter 14 is to bring to bear this doctrinal understanding reflected in a particular practice. The danger, the great danger here is that we'll separate our religion, Christianity, from our ethic, the practices of Christianity. There has been a separation certainly within theology between doctrine and practice, but there's also been a separation in Christianities. Christianity has become something for many people that you can believe apart from acting like a Christian. Now, we could discuss how it happened, you know, that uh, maybe that's less important. But in Catholicism, only those specially called were considered able to keep the ethic laid out in the Sermon on the Mount. Not everybody was expected to do that. Others could receive forgiveness and salvation through the sacraments. It became a kind of magical understanding. In Protestantism, there was a sharp divide between law and grace with Martin Luther, who considered the two pitted against one another. And as a result, then, you have doctrine and theology and ethical practice pitted against one another. And this then leaves ethics not in the hands of theology or in the, the model set by Christ, but in our own decisions. This is Dietrich Bonhoeffer when he reads Genesis 3. The idea, you know, that man will know good and evil, that he will become the arbiter of what good is and what evil is, rather than God. That at the beginning, there was not the necessity for this kind of searching for, you know, arbitration between the good and the evil, because man knew God. He knew good at its source, and that was adequate. And I think in Christ we have been returned then to the source of goodness. Um, So for Bonhoeffer, when man became an ethicist, that was a sign of the fall of man. Paul, I think, is returning us 
to this fusion of belief and practice. Love of the brethren does not leave us in some sort of moral quandary. Do I eat or don't I eat? Do I observe the special days or not? The unity of God and the unity of the body of Christ give us a moral principle that does not ultimately rely on our decision. The decision has been made for us. Um, I think that, you know, if you, if you, we've talked, if you go to study ethics at, in, in the secular university, they're not going to talk about the notion that in Christ or in Christianity, there is an alternative ethic. In fact, unfortunately, even at a Christian college, you can go and study ethics, and it just sounds like the same thing you get at the university. And what it boils down to is the idea that we then become the arbiters, that we are forced into ethical quandaries of deciding between what is good, you know, what is right. Um... This is Kant's categorical imperative. I would will to do only that which would be done universally. And then you, you know, as if it is the will of man that is primary. James describes people, this sort of decisionism, as being tossed about like a wave of the sea. Unquestionably, such inner struggle is a recurrent feature of our lives. But I think the exaltation of the will in Christianity, along with this kind of interiorization, that is, what is a a Christian? Well, it's somebody who's accepted Jesus in his heart. Christianity is something you do in your head. It's cut off from ethics. Then we're left with the moral quandaries, as if being continually divided against oneself were the soul's main business. As if a self-divided were the normal moral stuff of the Christian life. Certainly such sick souls exist, James says, who are tossed about like a wave of the sea. But this perpetual sickness is not the moral norm of the Christian life. In Christ's redemption, the single-minded one, this is what James is talking about in James 1.8, is freed from this kind of spurious knowledge, not fettered by principles, but bound by love for God. He has been set free from the conflicts of ethical decisions. So the one tossed by the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind, for that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. So the point is not that the Christian ever needs to decide. There are perplexities. Surely there's temptations for us. Our minds are sometimes divided. It is only to claim that decisionism cannot be an adequate or full account of the moral life. And I think what Paul is giving us in Romans 14 is the alternative. Paul's great theological effort in Romans is aimed at producing a community of practice that reflects this theology. Or to say it the other way around, the community of practice must be put into place to sustain and enact the theological understanding which Paul has put into place. God is one, and Christ has revealed to us who God is, therefore we need to be unified people. 
with a unified practice. And so the truth realized in a Jewish and Christian understanding is that belief and practice are inseparable. That may sound silly at some point. Practice reflects belief or worldview perhaps more than a conscious articulation. Let me give you an illustration of where it's, you know, in Japan, if you ask people, are you religious? You may be at a shrine and they may be praying. And if you ask them, are you religious? They say, oh no, I'm not religious. What are you doing? Well, this is what we do in Japan. You know, this is just part of... That is, the belief system and the practices are are separate. You understand that Japan is not strange in this. That is, in the history of religion, religion does not so much require that you believe it. Right? Now, that, that did the Romans believe their religion? You know, it's hard to say, but probably the sophisticated Roman really didn't believe or was not required to believe the religion, but did they practice the religion? Oh, you bet. They bowed the knee to Caesar. They offered the sacrifices that were necessary to show their allegiance. I read recently of a drug cartel in, I think it's Mexico. And they're all evangelical Christians. Uh, <laughs> it, you know, the, the guy running it, he actually, there's this uh, famous, uh, he's a writer here in the United States who does, you know, kind of manly Christianity. And all of his drug uh, salespeople, they have to read this book and, you know, and so they, and if you get caught, taking the drugs that they're selling, he'll just shoot you in the head. Uh, So very strong ethic, but of course, the belief and the practice have been disconnected. Um, Niels Bohr, the same Niels Bohr, you know, when Einstein uh, rejected the uh, quantum mechanics and said, God doesn't play dice, and Niels Bohr said to Einstein, don't tell God what to do. Um, somebody came into his house and Niels Bohr has a horseshoe up on the wall of his house and the visitor said, well, I'm surprised, Dr. Bohr, that a man of your great sophistication and, you know, scientific understanding that you would believe in a lucky horseshoe. He said, oh, no. He said, I don't believe in that. But I understand that it works even if you don't believe it. Uh, that's sort of the way religion works. You know, in Japan, do they really believe that when the Shinto priest comes out and drives the demons out, or that they, you know, when our children started swimming season, the priest came to the school, this was a public school, by the way, you just do this, and he drove the demons out of the water. And of course, Why would you do that? This is a public school. He said, well, it's swimming safety. You know, you don't. Of course you do that. We wouldn't want the children to drown now, would we? Um, So, uh, the idea here is that our tendency is to believe things that we don't know we believe. Right? Right? And to practice things that indicate a belief that we may not acknowledge. There's a split between belief and practice. And what Paul is trying to bring together 
is a unified belief, a unified practice. Kierkegaard said that we do not really believe in Christ, we just believe to believe. We believe in faith. That is, there's this split, and he was critiquing a Christianity of his day in which people didn't really practice it. Um, We cannot believe our own beliefs. (laughs) That's the strange thing. Or we practice something that indicates that we believe something that we don't acknowledge that we believe. That's how twisted this gets. So belief cannot really be cut off from practice. But the practice shows forth a belief that may be disavowed. You know, if you ask a a Japanese person what their worldview is, they don't know what their worldview is. Maisie, I always use Walmart. You know, ask your your cohorts at Walmart, you, you know, what's your worldview? Well, they probably don't know what that is. But do they have one? Oh yeah, they've got one because they're living in the world and they view the world in a particular way. They just can't articulate it. Uh, And that's where most people are at. They really don't know what they believe. But they have a set of beliefs that are given, that are shown forth in their practices. So, I really believe without being aware of it can also become, I do not really believe without being aware of it. We need to ask, does a Christian who consistently mistreats others, judges the other, treats the weak brother harshly, is unloving, is oppressive. Someone who insists that we practice certain days. Someone who's consistently legalistic and actually transgressive with regard to love of his brother and sister. Does that person believe in Christ? Not in any meaningful sense, right? They can have all the doctrines lined up. They can have all the practices lined up. They may be the preacher. But if they do not have love for their brothers and sisters, they are not a part of the family of Christ. So does this one have the faith of Christ? May make the point more sharply. It's not simply, you know, we've talked about this, that we believe in Christ and therefore we say we're saved. As if Christ is some object who, you know, died and he does all the religious stuff for us and we just have to believe in what he did. The point is that we have the belief of Christ. We have the faithfulness of Christ. Paul is attempting to bring about in the Christian community a new form of belief and practice in which they fit together. Therefore, do not let what is for you a good thing be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. For he who in this way serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. There is true faithfulness. So then we pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. There is true religion. Do not tear down the work of God for the sake of food. Do not destroy the conscience of your brother for the sake of your own freedom. Let the law of love reign in your life, and that is ethic enough. Let's sing our hymn.